Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Just over 20 years ago, in January of 2003, 23-year-old Rachel Corey traveled from her home in Olympia, Washington, to Palestine. Less than two months later, on this date, March 16th, she was dead, run over and crushed to death in the southern Gaza town of Rafah by a U.S.-provided Israeli military bulldozer. Joining us today from Olympia are Rachel's parents, Cindy and Craig Corey, co-founders of the Rachel Corey Foundation for Peace and Justice. They have worked tirelessly to keep not only the story of Rachel alive, but the campaign for peace with justice in Palestine. For over a decade, they pursued accountability in Rachel's case through efforts in the U.S. Congress, at the Departments of State and Justice, in U.S. and Israeli courts. They traveled across the Middle East. Uh, they've traveled across the Middle East, support, supported multiple delegations to the region, and made five trips to Gaza. Sharing their daughter's story over the past 20 years, they've spoken broadly throughout the U.S. and internationally as educators and advocates for Palestine and universal human rights. Cindy and Craig Corey, it's uh, truly my honor to uh, welcome you both to WRT. Thank you so much, Alan, for having us. We appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. It's good to be here again. So let's start at very basically. Who was Rachel Corey? Give us some sense, some background, perhaps, since since she obviously just suddenly did not decide out of the blue one day to hop plane to Palestine. Rachel uh, was our third child. Uh, we live here in Olympia, Washington. We're speaking right now from our, our home just outside of Olympia, where Rachel grew up. And uh, uh, just down the hill from us is a, a stream, uh, a beautiful stream where she would play in the rushes. She wrote about playing in the rushes. She wrote that that was a place where she'd like to stay forever. <laughs> uh, but she grew up and uh, went to school at the Evergreen State College here in Olympia. And uh, as, a, as a child, um, you know, one thing that she brought to us in her writing as a student was that here we were uh, on the land of the Squiatl part of the Squaxin Island tribe here in, in our region. And that was something Craig and I didn't know. And so she, she was, she was uh, deeply interested in our local history here, um, but also uh, during her years at Evergreen, touched by 9-11 um, and the coming of the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan. Uh, there were uh, peace groups that joined after uh, after the uh, attack on the on the trade center and on, on the um, buildings in New York City, and she connected very quickly as a student with those different groups and became very active with them. And she was always looking for the root causes: what were causing these things to happen? And one one issue that was pointed to was the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And she explored that. And then friends of hers traveled uh, to Palestine in 2002 with a new movement that had formed, the International Solidarity Movement, ISN. And uh, Rachel heard, she followed their work and she heard their stories and and she felt that was something that she could do and that she wanted to do. Um, 
going back, you know, to who she was as a person and as a child, many people have seen a speech she gave when she was 10 years old here at our state capitol. Uh, it was on world hunger. And um, she went to an, an alternative program within our Olympia public schools that our family had worked hard to, to help create. The program still exists. And the idea was that children would view themselves as having agency and be able to take action on issues that mattered and to learn about issues that mattered. So um, she had that kind of background. She was a writer, a thinker, an artist all her life. So Cindy and Craig, Corey, what took her to Gaza? Uh, what were her reasons or her motivations? Well, she wrote that she wanted to go to see what it was like to be on the receiving end of the U.S. foreign policy. As Cindy said, she had friends that had gone to uh, Palestine the previous summer. She had a, uh, a professor. She knew a professor at Evergreen who was uh, Israeli, but against the occupation. Uh, she, uh, Simona was one of the founders uh, of Women in Black that some people may know about uh, as part of the um, protest of uh, against the occupation. So uh, she heard from her friends that there was actually, again, something she might be able to do about our foreign policy to go there and see for herself. It, the idea with the International Solidarity Movement was that uh, originally they people had called for a UN observers to try to see what's going on and perhaps keep the peace there. And that was blocked by uh, the US. But uh, other people thought, well, it doesn't have to be UN, we could just get observers to come. So that was the international solidarity movement. That was what they were trying to do. And Rachel went to Rafa because she heard that's where the need was greatest. And, uh, and that's where she wanted to be. She, as Cindy said, she went to the Evergreen State College and before she left, she took Arabic classes. So um, she tried, would, after she got there, she was able to communicate with the people in their own tongue to a certain extent. And I think her Arabic got much better after she was there. So, yeah. So you, you alluded to Rafa. What specifically was it about Rafa? Well, at that time, uh, Rafa actually is the very southern tip of the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is uh, in the southwest part of Palestine or Israel uh, territory. If you look on the map, it's up against the Mediterranean. It's about, I, my memory is faulty here, but it's about 23 miles long and from 7 to 10 miles wide. Rafa is on the border with Egypt, not on the border with Israel, but on the border of Egypt. But at the time, Israel... Uh, by international law or uh, treaty, was in control of a small, narrow corridor on that border. But they decided they would just push down houses and make that corridor larger and larger. So there were uh, family homes being destroyed there along the border. It was uh, very traumatic, of course, for those families. And uh, so she went there to try to see if an American presence would slow down that destruction. Let's, let's continue on for a moment with uh, this whole issue of home demolitions. Uh, in preparing for the program today, I, I read that thousands of houses uh, of demolitions had been, take, had, taken, excuse me, had been taking place at the time in Gaza uh, as part of a uh, broader displacement that... Uh, the Israelis had their own justifications or rationales uh, for demolishing houses along the border, having to do with smuggling and, and tunnels and, and so on and so forth. But it seems to fit in a broader, uh, a, a broader into a broader project of uh, well of, of settler colonialism is one of the terms used. And and we weren't talking about settler colonialism at that time in 2003. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, question. Um, there were, Human Rights Watch put out a report in, I believe it was in 2004, called Raising Rafa. And they had investigated um, the, the mass uh, 
home demolitions that were happening along the border. It wasn't just an isolated home here and there. Um, the Israelis for years had been uh, conducting home demolitions in the West Bank, and uh, they would go to homes, we've been to homes that were destroyed uh, because the, the, the family didn't have a permit to build would be one of the reasons for doing that. But it was nearly impossible for, and still remains nearly impossible for, the, for a Palestinian family to get a permit to build. And so finally, um, families would just do that and hope that it wouldn't be discovered for some time. And uh, it, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions was one of the groups that befriended us very quickly after Rachel was killed. And their work was to go and to stand in front of houses and in front of bulldozers actually to try to prevent demolitions. And this was an Israeli, uh, primarily Israeli Jewish group of activists that were doing that work. So this had gone on for a long time. But in the Gaza Strip, in order to broaden uh, this uh, corridor, the Philadelphia corridor that Craig spoke of, they were taking down rows of houses. And in fact, a colonel in the Israeli military said on military radio that every time Arafat did something, and we have to keep in mind this was during the second intifada. It was a violent time. There were, um, there were many people being harmed, and uh, both Palestinian and is Israelis. And uh, the um, the colonel was saying every time Arafat did something, they would need to take down another row of houses. And he, the colonel stated this on Israeli um, military radio. And, uh, of course, the problem with that is that it's collective punishment. And it's also, uh, yeah, was, was taking, according to Human Rights Watch, it took a... Uh, I think a tenth of the population of Rafa lost their homes, over 16,000 people during that period, short period of time. And it displaced people. The, fa the family who lived in the house where Rachel lived um, had two brothers and their children, little, uh, ch the younger brother upstairs uh, with two little preschool age children, the uh, older brother downstairs with their three children. And that family, after their home was finally destroyed in 2004, early in 2004, um, they had to move, I think, one family four times, one family seven times before they could find a permanent location where they could stay because just the lack of housing was creating uh, such a problem for people. Uh, we've, we visited that home in September of uh, 2003, and it was the only house left on the border at, at that time. Around it was just a sea of rubble. You're listening to uh, Craig and Cynthia Corey, excuse me, the parents of uh, Rachel Corey, uh, were marking the 20th anniversary today of the death of the young activist uh, Rachel Corey. So what happened that day 20 years ago? What was Rachel doing? Well, um the day started out pretty calmly, as I understand uh, from reading Rachel's emails, and she was across town, but some of her friends were out on the border near the Nisraleh house. And again, the, this is the border with Egypt, not Israel, and two bulldozers and an armored personnel carrier were out there pushing at uh, dirt in the area and also pushing at some structures that were there. And the internationals were trying to stop them and worried that they would go on and, and uh, actually try to destroy houses, as we've talked about. The bulldozers, and these are huge bulldozers, they're, they're the D9 bulldozers, armored, so they're almost two stories high. They're not your D5s that you might see around Madison or here in the United States. But they would come up and the uh, activists would take a stand in front of them. They had bullhorns, uh, Rachel had on an orange vest when she got there. They would take a stand in front of these bulldozers. Each bulldozer had uh, two people in it, a driver and a, uh, another person who was an observer uh, to try to watch what was going on. And I say, also pointed out there was an armored personnel carrier there also watching. So the bulldozers would approach, and as they got close to the uh, activists, they would stop. 
usually with the dirt at the bottom of these activist feet. In one case, they rolled one activist into some concertina wire, but when uh, other activists shouted, they stopped, and I think Alice was pushed up against the wall, but again, they stopped. At about five o'clock, we're told, uh, all three vehicles uh, left, went back towards the border, so they were still visible, but they, um, they ceased their operations. And now we know that the captain in the armored personnel carrier used his telephone to call back to his base and ask that it, since it was getting late and there were activists here, could he cease operations? And we were so told, um, we don't have the exact transcript, but he was told not to let the activists stop them from doing their duty and to go back in there. And the next bulldozer run, the bulldozer did not stop. It went over Rachel. It then, uh, activists say, without picking up his shovel, it backed up over her again. And then, um, amazingly, Rachel was alive for a few moments. So her friends rushed to her. Her last words were, I think my back is broken. And from what we understand, she probably choked to death in the next minutes on the dirt that was in her lungs. But in speaking, she was pronounced dead at the hospital when she got there, but the ambulance drivers told us that there was no sign of life when they got to the scene. Again, you're listening to Craig and Cynthia Corey, Cindy Corey. If you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation in the hour, give us a call. Open up the lines at half past the hour. Give us a call at 608 uh, two five six two thousand and one extension nine. Let's talk about the uh, almost immediately, if not sooner. There was there were two divergent contending accounts of what took place. Uh, uh, Craig, you just laid out one, uh, <clears throat> but talk about the other. The one the initial Israeli response. There, the the responses changed through time, of course. But initially, uh, they were uh, told. I believe I believe what we heard is that um, a wall fell on Rachel. Uh, there was conversation very quickly with um, between the American embassy and with Israeli officials. And Craig, maybe you can remind me about what was said. Well, I think the, the first thing to know is that within hours after Rachel was killed, uh, Prime Minister Sharon promised President Bush in a telephone call between the two that there would be a thorough, credible, and transparent investigation in Rachel's killing with a report to be given to the U.S. government. And cutting to the chase, it is still the position of our U.S. government that they did not get a thorough, credible, and transparent investigation. But shortly after that, there were briefings given to uh, members of Congress, uh, the uh, embassy, and the White House. And in that, they said that Rachel was not run over by the bulldozer. And certain members of the uh, Israeli government, for instance, we did a lawsuit in Israel um, to try to get more information about what happened to Rachel. And the uh, Pinky Suarez, the colonel that was in charge of the operations from the rear, continued to say that uh, the bulldozer never ran over her. Whereas the uh, person, that, the captain that was in the armored personnel carrier, looked at a photograph that one of Rachel's friends said and, and said that's exactly what he saw, that within a, mo a minute after Rachel was killed, he could see that she was run over by the bulldozer driver. So what you had there was the highest ranking Israeli soldier that was actually in the field, knowing immediately that she was run over by a bulldozer. I remind you, it's an American-made bulldozer. Those were our tax dollars that paid for that bulldozer. And the heads of the government telling our embassy, our State Department, and our members of Congress that that hadn't happened. I want to read, uh, I came across this in, while I was preparing, uh, in an April 2003 report by the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense uh, Force or military, quote, contrary to allegations, Miss Corey 
was not run over by a bulldozer, but sustained injuries caused by earth and debris which fell on her during a bulldozer operation. At the time of the incident, Miss Corey was standing behind an earth mound and therefore obscured from the bulldozer crew's view. Uh, The report also accused Corey and other members of the International Solidarity Movement of illegal, irresponsible, and dangerous behavior. I just wanted to, I thought that quote was quite something. So let's talk about the aftermath. Uh, You filed two lawsuits. The first was against, uh, in U.S. federal court, was against Caterpillar, Inc., the Texas-based manufacturer of the bulldozers sold to Israel through a Defense Department program. Talk about that, that suit, and and what happened with it. Um, With the support of the uh, Ronald Peterson Law Clinic at Seattle University and with the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, we filed this lawsuit Uh, beginning in uh, 2005, uh, against Caterpillar, uh, not because uh, Caterpillar had provided a machine and something bad happened with it, but because um, Caterpillar was on notice from uh, organizations here in the U.S. and elsewhere that their machines were being used in the occupied territories to commit human rights violations and that they continued to conduct those sales and to uh, profit uh, from the human rights violations that were occurring. Um, Craig and I have seen uh, the D9R bulldozers that he described, these um, uh, very large machines that um, it's very hard even to find, uh, find them when you go to the Caterpillar website. You have to go to their military section to see information about these machines. Uh, and then they are further um, altered once they, or at least at that time they were, once they get to Israel. Um, but they, they were used regularly for demolitions in the West Bank and also in Gaza. Um, other Caterpillar equipment we saw used there as well. Uh, when the wall in the West Bank was being built, there were more of the kinds of Caterpillar machines that we see that were out and were contributing to that, which... Uh, is also illegal being built on Palestinian land. Um, we uh, the the case was heard here in federal district court. Um, it, uh, the judge there found uh, against the case against us, uh, and I should say that Craig and I agreed to to do this. Um, providing that Palestinian families were also on the case. And there were several other Palestinian families whose homes had been demolished in Gaza and in the West Bank and where family members had been killed or seriously injured as a result of those demolitions. Craig and I were in Nablus um, one year and we were we were taken to the cemetery and we were as we were walking through, I saw the name El Shobi. And I, then I realized that's one of the families who were on the Caterpillar lawsuit. And there were eight family members killed in that home demolition uh, that happened in uh, 2002 or 2003 also. And uh, a baby, a mother who was uh, pregnant, a grandfather, were among those who were killed. And so um, our, our hope was to bring attention to what was happening with these machines that were being sold by the U.S. company Caterpillar and were being paid for by U.S. tax dollar money. Um, the uh, decision was appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, at that time, uh, the U.S. government um, provided a uh, statement to the court and they said that while they would make, they were very sympathetic to our case personally, and while they would make no judgment about uh, the, you know, what happened with to Rachel, uh, what what they brought forth was that they wanted, they were fearful that if uh, the court should find against Caterpillar, that that would interfere with the separation of powers, and that it would also constrict um, companies from wanting to participate in foreign military sales. 
and the court on the basis of separation of powers basically um, deferred to the executive branch and did not um, and the case died at that point. I think the court actually said that if Caterpillar was on notice that these were human violation uh, human rights violations that the uh, State Department would also have to be on notice and they couldn't uh, pass judgment on a you know, different part of our government. So uh, yes, that was the whole point, to make corporations responsible for their own actions, but we couldn't press that in court. You know, I just want to pull another quote here uh, in, in relation to this, that the presiding judge in the Federal Appeals Court in 2007 said that we are mindful of the potential for causing international embarrassment for, were a federal court to undermine for, foreign policy decisions in the sensitive context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, and of course, at the very same time, the Iraq war is going on. Uh, and there's, well, the military-industrial complex is spinning away. 256-608-256-2001, if you want to Give us a call with a question, a comment, an observation for our guests today, Cindy and Craig Corey. Give us a call. Excuse me while I rustle paper. Um, let's talk about the second suit uh, in 205, a civil suit in Israel against the state of Israel and the defense ministry. What was your objective or intent and your hopes with that case? Well, um, Sort of amazingly enough, that uh, lawsuit was suggested to us back in 2003 by uh, Colin Powell's chief of staff at the time, Larry Wilkerson. We were in a meeting with him and uh, several other high-ranking State Department officials when, uh, and we had been promised to remind you this thorough, credible, and transparent investigation, which never happened. But uh, Mr. Wilkerson looked at me and he said, if it was my daughter, I'd sue him. And uh, in the end, in, after two years, and we weren't seeing the sort of uh, response to diplomatic in efforts to hold somebody responsible or at least find out what happened, the only avenue that a family could control was filing a civil lawsuit. And we did so in Israel so that we could compel in court the Israeli witnesses to come and to be able to do depositions and, and get more information. So we did enter into that lawsuit. Our attorney, Hussein Abba Hussein, is a uh, Palestinian citizen of Israel and a member of the bar there. So uh, we filed it uh, the day before we would have uh, lost our ability to file a suit. So uh, that was filed on um, March 15th of 2005. Our first day in court was on March 10th of 2010, and our last day in court was on July 10th of 2011. The courts there don't have a jury. The It's just the judge listening to it, and he schedules uh, what day he's going to listen uh, to his own um, for his own reasons, and, and, and he's explained with no particular care whether somebody had to uh, come from across the seas to hear. 608-256-2001. Give us a call with a question, a comment, an observation. You sued for the grand sum of one U.S. dollar damages. Why uh, that? Why that is symbolic amount? What was that about? Well, there's, there's confusion about that, actually, because... Uh, there, there are different types of damages within a, a lawsuit like this. And, and this was one particular aspect of the case. Um, and the judge, uh, I'm, they were, and I'm forgetting now, I'm, uh, well, the type I'll, of damages. I'll, I'll pick it up yeah. there. But uh, actually, we were, at the time, our attorney had in court the person that did the autopsy on Rachel. And we found out in court that he had kept 
Rachel's body parts, some of Rachel's body parts. We didn't know that, but now this is 2010. She was killed in 2003, and they still haven't repatriated all of Rachel's body. The judge stopped the proceedings and said we could not continue to ask any questions about this because it didn't pertain to how Rachel was killed. And our attorney said, but we're asking for punitive damages. And the uh, judge asked for how much, and our attorney said, well, we hadn't decided on that. And the judge says, I'll give you five minutes to decide. Well, in Israel, they had never actually awarded, we were told, punitive damages for anything. You have to put up a bond, I believe it was of 2% of whatever you ask for, and you're not going to get that bond back. So what would be a reasonable allowed? I don't know, five, ten million dollars? We couldn't, you know, we couldn't do that. So we said uh, one dollar for punitive damages. And with that dollar, uh, I offered to put up the two pennies for uh, the bond, but the judge didn't require that. But he allowed us to continue this questioning. And through that, our attorney established that this um, this person at the Abakadir Institute had been routinely keeping body parts of Palestinians, of Israelis, and of our daughter. And uh, and so after that, we were told by people in Israel that a number of Israeli citizens managed to get the body parts of of their loved ones back to them and. Eventually, our family did, but it was 2017 before we managed to get all of Rachel back to Olympia. I, I would just um, add that, unfortunately, uh, with the outcome of lawsuits, um, it, you know, success is based on money. But it was never that was never our family's reason or intention for pursuing this lawsuit. Uh, we were seeking accountability and information. And, um, and we, we felt that we were successful in that. Our court, the courtrooms are small there, but they were filled during every session. There was somebody, we think most days, I, uh, uh, almost every day, somebody from the American Embassy was there listening. We had wonderful support from human rights organizations and legal rights organizations within Israel, as well as from other places like Human Rights Watch. And so people were paying attention. And it, it was a rare, it's a rare occurrence in Israeli courts to have a case um, brought against the Israeli military for anything that's happened in Gaza or the West Bank. And so um, uh, our, our goal um, uh, was, was accountability. Our goal was to get more information and to let people see and for us to see how this uh, Israeli judicial system functions. Uh, Cindy and Craig Corey, I want you to stay with this word for a moment. It's come up several times already, and I think it's so so central. What do you mean when you talk about accountability? Well, I think that you have, we need to, you know, that idea of a, a thorough, credible, and transparent investigation with a public report, and then something that follows up on that. You know, our... For instance, right after Rachel was killed, within, I believe, two months, maybe a shorter period of time, U.S. Congress voted to send another billion dollars to Israel. Now, we're hearing from the State Department that they are working at very high levels uh, with the Israeli government to get a reporting about what happened to Rachel. But as I told them, their letters, their inquiries are meaningless compared to another billion dollars. That tells Israel all it needs to know. So that's the very opposite of accountability. There has to be some action. And under U.S. law, of course, there could be. The Leahy Amendment says that we can't send money to uh, units and individuals that per perpetrate human rights violations. And yet that is not um, enforced, particularly in the case of Israel. So there were things that could be done. Uh, and uh, it's my belief um, that while there was really nothing we could do for Rachel, Rachel was dead. You know, maybe if we had 
if, if the U.S. government had been serious about some sort of consequences in Rachel's case, that the uh, U.S. citizen and Palestinian a journalist, uh, Shireen Abu Akhla, might not be killed. And from, from your state, uh, Omar Assad was killed when he uh, left some friends out to drive home uh, when he, after he'd retired. He went back to the West Bank. So, uh, and then at this point, they're still trying to do investigations, and I, I think honestly so, with the State, the State Department is trying to look into those deaths. But what we're really working on there is trying to prevent the, the uh, death of whoever's next. And for my part, the death of so many Palestinians and Israelis that are being uh, killed in this settler colonial uh, project that is the expansion of Israel. Um, in February of 2015, the uh, Supreme Court of Israel reju- rejected an appeal. Um, it upheld the assertion that Rachel Corey was a reckless human being, uh, fully responsible for her own demise. Um, talk about some of the assertions and claims uh, that the defense team made in pushing forward that argument. Um. Well, uh, it, it, the the defense, of course, uh, tried to discredit Rachel and the entire international solidarity movement in every way that they possibly could. Uh, they brought, as an expert witness about ISM, uh, uh, I, maybe the highest-ranking person who testified. General. She was the general, but sh- she had been their communications. Uh, person uh, during that period. And uh, she, uh, what she basically did is read news reports or put together, uh, yeah, news reports. She changed, it's strange in Israeli courts, but the first, um, the first testimony is done in writing before you ever get there. And uh, so really what happens is that the, that that you can uh, our, our attorneys will be able to question them. She changed her entire testimony from about ten pages to hundreds of, uh, or a hundred pages of testimony right at the last minute. And of course, this is all in Hebrew. We have to try to translate it. And then our attorney said, "Well, you don't have to translate it. It's all out online. It's just taken off of a website." Um, so, anyhow. She is the the expert witness, for instance, as Cindy's saying, about the ISM and the court is accepting this. I think uh, it it was telling to me that this woman is testifying what about what the international solidarity movement had on their website, and she's saying that they can they I've, I've forgotten the exact words, but I believe she testified. So translating into Hebrew that the international solidarity movement approved of using violence uh, to protect the Palestinians. And, and it's actually out on the website. They said they do not, but, the, but she left out the word not, totally changing the meaning. So then there erupted a discussion in court uh, when our attorney pointed out that she uh, did not interpret it right. She ended up saying, well, a good interpretation isn't the exact words, it's what they meant. And the judge smiled and nodded and we went on our way, leaving uh, the testimony in Hebrew, uh, exactly the opposite of what they said. So some of it came from there. I think one of the things that I noticed all the time, we of course have to have translators and they are Jewish Israelis, often refusing people that refuse to fight uh, young men that refuse to fight in the occupied territories that are translating into our ears. As we would hear any reference to Palestinians, particularly in Gaza, it was translated as terrorists. Terrorists. I don't think in the U.S. a judge would find that prejudicial. He did find it prejudicial when we said Rachel was killed. He didn't want us to use the word killed for some reason in English. So you have all of this information coming from the lower court, the judge agreeing pretty much with anything 
absolutely anything that the uh, military would say and, and with the uh, attorneys for Israel. And that just gets taken up as, as um, fact when it gets to the higher court. They're looking at other things. And I think what was this, so, so your reaction was no surprise to us when you get to the higher court. That that would ha- that would come that way. What was surprising to me is that the higher court said that international law did not apply to what Israel did in the Gaza Strip, and that just guts international law. That um, and of course would excuse them in their own minds from all sorts of human rights violations, war crimes, what have you. So it's pretty disturbing in uh, that sense. Uh, it's the, ap- the absolute opposite of what we would wished that the the high court would find, but um, and I think our conclusion, you know, after um, the Supreme Court uh, decision, was that the Israeli courts, uh, along with all the other branches branches of government, are complicit in what's happening to Palestinians and. Uh, and in fact, generally is supportive of the military, even though for years we had heard that the Israeli Supreme Court, um, that the courts were positive and that, that there could be a positive outcome coming from them. And uh, after experiencing that, we would say that the court is, is a part of the system that maintains uh, the oppression of the Palestinian people. The anniversary of Rachel's death comes as ongoing violence has resulted in the highest death toll in the West Bank since 2004. Nearly 150 Palestinians were killed by Israeli troops last year, according to Israeli human rights group B'Tselem. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the situation has worsened since the re-election last November of Benjamin Netanyahu as Israel's prime minister and the ascent of his far-right wing coalition government. I imagine you have lots of observations. You watched the, you alluded to some, some of the things going on already, but I'm curious that our listeners are probably as well about your observations about the current situation. It's a very dangerous situation. And uh, I know that people are hearing about the protest uh, that are happening in Tel Aviv now. I, I think I read that at, at least one occasion in the past week or so, there were up to 500,000 people who were um, protesting. And those protests started and I think still are primarily focused on the attempt of the, the, the newly... Uh, the newly placed um, Israeli government uh, leadership with Netanyahu, but then with a, a coalition. They have a, a parliamentary system, different than ours, and it took a, takes a coalition of parties, they have multi-parties, and so a coalition of parties to form the, the, um, the governing group. And this is the most right-wing coalition in Israel's history. Uh, and uh, one of those people visited here this past week here in the United States, the Minister of Finance, to speak to an Israeli uh, bonds uh, meeting. And uh, many people here in the U.S. petitioned for him not to come. Uh, people will have heard about the situation near Nablus at Hawara, uh, where uh, it's, it's uh, along a route that both settlers and Palestinians use um, Hawara near Hawara. Two Israeli settlers were killed by a Palestinian, and then subsequent to that, uh, f- over 400 settlers went into the community of Hawara and committed what's being called a pogrom, where they burned cars and houses and structures, and uh, one person was killed. And the Minister of Finance, part of the government, said that Hawara should be wiped out. That drew a lot of criticism. And even the U.S. government, the State Department, said that the remarks were repugnant. repugnant. There was consideration of not um, giving him a visa to come to the U.S., but he was ultimately allowed to do that. But 
people within our government did not meet with him. He was protested and so forth. But it's an example of um, what the current Israeli government looks like and what their aims are. Um, uh, ben Gavir, who, um, and, and also Smotrich, who is here, they have a great deal of control over what's happening in the West Bank now. And their intention appears to be to annex it. In fact, Israeli, um, Israeli human rights and legal organizations are saying that um, appointing these peoples to this position is, is almost like de facto annexation of the West Bank. And of course, there are very frustrated Palestinians, frustrated with their own government or with, with the um, PA. And uh, so there's more violence happening there's a lot of concern about what will happen in the upcoming holidays. Ramadan is starting soon. And Ben Gavir has actually suggested that this is a period when he would um, try to enforce uh, home demolitions on those who do not have permits. And I explained before that it's almost impossible for people, Palestinians, to get permits to build. And uh, so there's, there's a great deal of concern. I know that yesterday... Um, the president, which is, it's mostly a, it's, it's not a real authority, uh, not a position with a lot of authority, but President Herzog warned that he thinks Israel could be approaching a civil war over all of these issues. Um, what's going on is not so much about the Palestinians. It is about um, the protests, about what's happening, the threat to the Israeli judiciary um, uh Netanyahu and these right-wing uh, folks that now are in power want to curb the power of the judiciary uh, by um, allowing them to have more control over the justices that are appointed and by having ability for the Knesset to reverse a Supreme Court decision with a majority vote. So um, people in Israel are very concerned about um, what happens to them as a democracy even though that has not, from our point of view and from many people's point of view, not been a democracy at all for the Palestinian people, of course. You know, in some level, what's going on now tails back to this discussion of accountability or, or more aptly, the absence of any standard of accountability uh, or responsibility uh, and how it's left the door open for impunity, uh, both by state actors uh, and by non-state actors, uh, settlers, uh, settlers, zealots, and, and so on and so forth. Um, just a thought I threw out because as I was listening to you from our previous theme, any thought on that maybe? I think, um, yeah, I think that's true. You know, I, I really believe that what we're seeing right now is just the last step in this colonial project and that if you've got Native Americans listening, they know this story. They know about being pushed into uh, settlements or back onto a reservation and all of that. It's uh, a history of the United States uh, that we should be ashamed of. And also it's been, you know, you can look at the West Bank, you can look inside Israel, and I think it's apt to use Jimmy Carter's words of apartheid. And there are ways to, that the U.S. and all around the world we use to try to change South Africa's apartheid. The, we were just talking to friends in Gaza just uh, yesterday, I guess, and what they said is you need to support uh, the, the project of, uh, of divestment and sanctions and Boycotts. <laughs> boycotts, boycotts, divestment and sanctions. And so uh, we can do that from the United States. And what I would remind people, you know, we have friends in Israel. We have Jewish friends. We have Jewish friends whose daughter was killed by Palestinians. And yet they say it was this, this occupation that killed their daughter. And I would tell people that it was boycotts, divestments and sanctions that did not destroy South Africa, that saved South Africa. And we have an opportunity, I think, to do the same thing about Israel. I think this accountability could actually save them from themselves. 
You know, we have but a couple minutes left, say three three minutes or so. Talk in, in closing, talk about the Rachel Corey Foundation for Peace and Justice, why you established it and its ongoing work uh, or particular projects. We established it early on uh, because people were sending us gifts of cash and we thought, what do we do with this? And we happened to meet Linda Beale, whose daughter was killed in South Africa. She was trying to register um, black South Africans for the first time that they could vote. And they had started a foundation. She happened to be in our area at the time. And so just one day we said, okay, let's start a foundation. And we did. And we've now been existed for 20 years. Um, we work very hard to maintain the commitment that Rachel wanted to make to the people of Gaza, to the people of Palestine, to people who are uh, working alongside Palestinians. Um, uh, and that includes people in the peace movement in Israel as well um, uh, for Palestinian rights. Uh, we do education. We have several projects in Gaza that we support. The Ra Rachel Corey Ramadan football tournament, tournament is uh, being planned to begin later this month and next month. Uh, we have uh, the Palestinian Cultural Palace work, which is doing really creative, artistic, uh, creative work with children and youth. And the tournament for athletes with uh, disabilities that happens at the end of the year. Uh, we have locally um, events to educate and and uh, scholarship programs and so forth uh, and advocacy which is so important with our elected officials uh, because going back to that idea of accountability um, as Craig pointed out the position of the US government is still that Rachel's um, case was not thoroughly incredibly investigated by the Israeli government and yet um, at, the, at the end of all of our work, um, the U.S. took no further step. And I think that we, we have to demand accountability to U.S. law in order to uh, establish clearly with people who are benefiting from our military funding that there are limits to what we will allow to happen with that funding. And uh, we do believe uh, that the deaths of Shireen Abu Akhla and Omar Assad could have been prevented if the U.S. had made it very clear that there would be consequences to the kinds of actions that killed Rachel. Well, we're getting right down to the end of the wire. I want to thank uh, both of you, uh, Craig and Cindy Corey, for taking time on this day. It, must, it can't be easy. So, thanks. Thank you, Alan. I want to thank. Uh, <clears throat> I want to thank uh, all your listeners, our engineer, producer, and so on. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Talk to you next week. With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and supported Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen